Hello, this is Rich Cooper with Space Foundation with a special edition of the Space for You podcast. This podcast commemorates the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks upon the United States. Anyone who was alive that day has a story of where they were and how it unfolded. All of those stories are as unique as the individuals who tell them. They contain heartbreak and horror, as well as bear witness to the heroism of a day that changed everything for so many. But of all of those unique stories is one told by an American who was not on the planet that day. Joined by two Russian cosmonauts on board the International Space Station as part of the Expedition 3 crew, Frank Culbertson was serving as commander of that mission. A veteran astronaut and a leader who helped shape the training of American astronauts and Russian cosmonauts as part of the Shuttle Mir program, and later the ISS expedition crews that he would subsequently become part. Frank Culbertson's experiences as a naval officer, test pilot, and engineer were given many tests, but nothing could have prepared him or his crewmates for the changes and challenges that happened on planet Earth that day. Even being 254 miles above the Earth and traveling at more than 17,000 miles per hour, does not make you immune to the happenings of your home planet. Space Foundation is humbled and proud to share Frank's unique story with you, our listening audience, and even prouder of our relationship with Frank as a member of our board of directors. Recorded during a break of the programming at the 36 Space Symposium in Colorado Springs, here's our conversation with Navy Captain Frank Culbertson. Tell me about September 10th, 2001 on the space station, just a regular day. Yeah, the 10th was just a regular day. We were preparing to receive a new module, and so we've been going through the checklist for that and uh, making sure that everything was ready on the station for that. Um, went through our normal routines and uh, you know, worked on some experiments and, and um, did some communications with the ground. And then on the 11th, um, my first task of the day was to after normal stuff, you know, uh, maintenance and things, was to do um, conduct physicals, medical physicals, on all the crew. Um, so you were the flight surgeon as well. I was basically the flight surgeon, yeah, the, the uh, commander and the flight surgeon. But my dad was a physician, so I think that justified it. But uh, we've been on orbit thirty days, and uh, that's when we typically do the the physicals every thirty days. And um, so at the end of that, uh, Vladimir had done mine and recorded all the data, and I, and I did the physicals on Michael and, and Vladimir. And um, had all the data recorded, and so the plan was to call the ground on a secure circuit, an encrypted circuit, so because it was private medical information, and talk to the flight surgeon, uh, Dr. Steve Hart. And so I called the ground, and, and um, uh, they finally connected me to him, and I said, hey, Steve, how's it going? And, uh, you know, ready to give him the information and just catch up. And this is September 11th? Yeah, yeah, because he's a good friend. And um, Steve said, uh, well, Frank, we're not having a very good day down here on Earth. And my first thought was there must have been an accident or some family member has a problem or who knows what. But I'm sure he's going to tell me, but I was a little leery of what it might be. And he began to describe to me what had happened in New York City and at the Pentagon, and as we were talking, he said, uh, we're watching the news, and another plane just crashed, this time in Pennsylvania. We don't know any details about it. So what I was thinking uh, initially was there must be this wild spate of accidents or something, and then I realized we were under attack. 
The other odd thing was I was halfway through Tom Clancy's A Sum of All Fears uh, on an audio book. Fabulous book. Yeah, really good, but... But has quite the ending. Yeah, but I, th- I thought, am I in a book? <laughs> is this a movie? I mean, is this real? And um, just kind of fleeting thoughts. And um, as he's describing it, and, you know, asked a few questions. I called my crewmates in to where we were talking in the laboratory because um, uh, they needed to hear what was going on. And, of course, they were very concerned and very serious. Russia had been attacked by terrorists several times in the preceding couple of years. And, uh, you know, we had no idea how widespread this attack was going to be, how many countries might be involved. Uh, so we took it very seriously. And as we are talking to the ground and trying to get some updates, because we had no live TV. In fact, we had no live internet. We, we had sporadic email, basically, um, and verbal. And so they're telling us what's going on. And I looked at the world map on the laptop that we had right by the comm station, and I saw that we were coming over Canada uh, and realized we were going to be over New, New England shortly. And so I. Uh, told the ground to stand by and I raced around and found a video camera and a window facing in the right direction and as we crossed over Maine about 400 miles from New York City I could look down out that window uh, it actually was Michael's bedroom window that I was looking out of and uh, and clearly see the smoke rising out of New York out over Long Island over the Atlantic so it made it easy to zoom in with the camera and look at what was happening and as I zoomed in the um, a big gray blob enveloped southern Manhattan and it turned out I found out later what I was seeing was a second tower come down um, to me it was just explosions and and, you, and again you're 230 miles above the earth yes yep and uh, and traveling at five miles a second so it's going away pretty quickly and I stayed focused on it as long as I could um, uh, assuming that <clears throat> Tens of thousands of people must be dying knowing it was New York City and looking at what seemed to be the magnitude of the the event. Um, I made some comments and said some words about bringing these people to justice and how much it hurt me to see my country under attack. So you're up there with your Russian crewmates. You mentioned that your Russian crewmates, Russia had experienced terrorist attacks earlier. How did they react? Because this was a very sort of personal attack on America in that regard. Well, obviously they have a lot of friends in America and we're flying on a joint spacecraft and uh, uh, they took it uh, very seriously also. And as New York faded over the horizon at five miles a second, I said, okay, 90 minutes from now, we need to be ready. Well, I want every camera we've got uh, in a window somewhere so that we can take pictures as we go over uh, the United States again, not knowing for sure what it looked like or what we might see. you know, the ground couldn't talk to us very much because they were pretty preoccupied with what was going on. They to- told us a little bit more news. Um, but, did it, but it never interrupted station operations? Well, it did for a couple of hours that morning. And, uh, um, I mean, it didn't affect our station operations, but we changed our schedule. We right. focused on this. And um, uh, so 90 minutes later, as we crossed the Midwest, we came right over Chicago. We crossed... Um, Indiana. I had a daughter at Purdue University at the time. Uh, the weather was perfectly clear all over the eastern United States. It was a perfectly clear September day. Yes, it was gorgeous. On the east coast, it yeah. certainly was. And uh, and I could see all the way from Chicago to Houston, where a large part of my family was. And as we came down towards the eastern seaboard, 
uh, we had, I couldn't see anything in Pennsylvania. I looked, no smoke or anything. It happened so fast and in such a contained way. Um, but as we crossed Washington, and I could see all up and down the East Coast, and I have fam had family all the way down the East Coast also, I could clearly see uh, the smoke coming out of the Pentagon. I used my binoculars to focus in and could see the gash in the sides of the building, even flashes of emergency vehicles, lights as we crossed over. And that was at night, or is that during the day that you were able to see some of those flashes? During the day, yeah. It was more dramatic at night, of course, uh, as the uh, emergency vehicles were around, but, but this was mid-morning, and um, or late morning, I guess, by then. and. Um, uh, and we click, quickly, quickly crossed over the Pentagon and over the eastern shore, and I could look back up and still see New York clearly. And so I took some more video of the smoke coming out over the Atlantic from from New York City. And um, uh, and as we're going out over the Atlantic, I'm thinking, you know, as many people as I know that fly airplanes and that travel and go to New York City and work in the Pentagon, I'm probably going to know somebody who was affected by this. And of course, it was breaking my heart to see my country under attack like this and not know what else I could do besides take pictures, record it, and send hopeful messages down to the folks uh, on Earth. So as we came around the third time, um, I, of course, always look at the U.S. as we went over. And by that time, almost all of the contrails that are normally a spider web over the United States had disappeared because they had grounded all the airplanes except for one airplane that I saw streaking across the country, um, which for a long time I thought was Air Force One trying to get the president back. Uh, it turned out he was on a different route and a different time. And I found out about two years ago, just by happenstance, because I met the guy who was flying the airplane at a conference, it was an airborne command post that was being diverted from the west to the east coast because they had just launched on a 30-hour training mission with two full crews to change out over time and they were being sent to control the fighters on the east coast from the air and uh, and they did stay airborne for over 30 hours uh, taking care of that business uh, and it was quite an honor to, to meet him also um, but you know that made it real that they had grounded everything and that had just never happened in the US before um, we were still we were getting bits and pieces of what was going on, but not a, not a lot of detail. You mentioned the bits and pieces. Did you ever felt? Did you ever feel you were being kept in the dark? Not at all. No, nope. I did get message from the ground uh, that they had uh, contacted my family, and uh, they had all contacted each other, and that everybody was fine in the various places where they, that they lived, which was you know a source of relief to me. And NASA actually set up a telecom with my wife at the time uh, that evening um, so that I could talk to her directly and make sure that I could hear from her that everybody was okay. The center director had actually called me on the air ground before that to assure me that they were looking out for my family and for my crewmates' families to make sure everybody was, was all right and would keep us uh, enlightened if anything happened. History will record you're the only American not on the planet during 9-11. It's probably one of the most unique distinctions. How does that make you feel? Well, it, it is unique and, um, you know, I, I'd hoped to be famous for other things growing up, but, but uh, uh, and I hope some of my other accomplishments uh, uh, justify the fact that I was actually in space at that time and, and commanding the station. Um, 
so yeah it is a unique position and um, it doesn't make me any better or worse than any of the other people that were experiencing this it's just unique as you said um, I wasn't under attack I wasn't going to get deployed um, uh, I didn't lose any direct family members uh, however the next morning I did get a call from TJ Creamer my uh, support astronaut on the encrypted loop again to give me updates on what was happening and he said well Frank I've got some bad news um, your classmate Chick Berlingame from the Naval Academy was the captain of American Airlines Flight 77 that was crashed into the Pentagon and of course that hit me really hard because Chick and I were aerospace majors together at the Academy we played the drum and bugle corps together we both were trained to fly the F-4 Phantom at the same time and, um, and we'd known each other since 1967 and um, so it became very personal but I felt pretty well informed while we were up there it's just uh, I wasn't in harm's way <laughs> despite the fact that um, one of my other support astronauts uh, Don Pettit who's a real whiz um, and likes to do things because he likes to calculate and learn and stuff and doesn't always think about you know why he's doing it um, he sent me an email and said hey Frank I just wanted you to know I've done the calculations and they actually could hit you with a Scud missile if they got lucky because they can get to that altitude it's not guided but you know they might get lucky and I said thanks for Don thanks for a lot for that Don. I was going to say that, that had to have been an uplifting conversation <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I gave him brief about that when I got back but um, it's just one of the things he did but it was interesting to know um, and I actually at one point uh, there were a couple of folks on the ground in the management chain who sent sort of an indirect message to me that they weren't sure if they wanted me sending down so many photos and videos of what was going on. They didn't want anybody to retaliate against Mission Control or Moscow or anything. I said, look, you guys can do whatever you want to with the products that I send down, but I feel it's my job to record history in this particular situation, and I'm going to take all the pictures I can get uh, because somebody might need them someday or might want to see them. And uh, so I continued. I took thousands of pictures, and I have no idea how many hours of video of what I was seeing every pass. Your photo that you took, the what was then the morning of 9-11, is in the September 11th uh, Museum, the National Memorial in New York City. That is one of the more unique and iconic photographs of that day. What's it feel like to be the photographer of one of those moments? Um, uh, I, I'm not sure what word to use. I mean, photographers get lucky, you know, and sometimes you're in the right place at the right time. Uh, you have the right settings or you do the right thing with the camera or you frame it correctly. Um, but if you see something, you should record it. And I've always felt that way when I have a camera handy. And um, uh, my main goal with trying to record those things and take that photo, for example, is to share it with other people so they could see it from my vantage point and hopefully learn from it. One of the things that crew members often do is have uh, communications with various schools, communities, to share the experience of what you're going on. Did you have any communications with uh, the people of New York or um, in Virginia or Pennsylvania where these things occurred? Some of them, yeah. Um, I did a lot of what we call school contacts using the amateur radio system we had on board. Um, I think I was scheduled to do about maybe eight or ten during the mission. I found out they weren't being done very often, so I did over 40 
and uh, kept pushing the ground to schedule more. And uh, one of them was actually to Kathy Thornton's daughter's junior high school, which is how I found out they weren't getting enough contact because Kathy sent me a note. Uh, so we had that connection even then, uh, and she and our classmates as astronauts. After 9-11, Ellen Baker got in touch with me and she said, I think it's PS33, I think is the number. Um, she said they were like, they're about three blocks from ground zero and they had to evacuate during the attack and they had to change schools three times over the next week because of all the, the rescue and recovery operations that were going on. And, um, and it really affected them. And it was a great school and uh, the students and the teachers. Um, she's a native from New York and she said, do you mind uh, doing a uh, radio contact with these folks and you know, just answering their questions and sharing a little bit about space flight? I said, I'd be honored. And uh, so I think it was in November uh, of that year, I did make contact with the, with the school, answered their questions as thoroughly as I could. Um, one of the things I learned when I was up there early on was that it was great that they sent me the questions ahead of time, but eventually I had to make sure they sent me the answers to the questions because <laughs> some of the kids ask really hard questions. Um, but it was fun uh, and meaningful to be talking to them. But um, when you and I went to New York City on Flag Day of the next year to return the flags that were flown on the shuttle in honor of the people of New York and Washington, um, I had, the uh, again, the honor to go visit that school and talk to those kids that were there and to the teachers. And it also was very meaningful for me and I think for them to close the loop on that that autumn that we talked to each other from space. And uh, I was really fortunate to, to be able to do that. So you continue your mission, you and your crewmates, orbiting the Earth every 90 minutes. And obviously this remains the commanding news story of the world, of what's happening. You go to return to planet Earth in December of that year. You left one world and came back to another. Did you really observe a different world when you returned? I did, and um, uh, I was prepared for it. I mean, people had been sending me pictures and descriptions of what had happened in the days and weeks afterwards and what changes had been made in security. and at the airports, et cetera, and how a lot of things just weren't accessible anymore. You know, <laughs> I saw pictures of the big concrete, you know, uh, pylons that were put in front of public buildings and all the other changes that were made. And, um, and the top security, the uh, heightened security that was going on everywhere. Uh, so we, we sort of expected it, but until you actually see it, you don't really know what it's gonna be like. Um, uh, and so, yeah, we did, we did come back to a different world, and as we reacclimated, and you know, had to travel around the country, around the world, to to you know, for post flight or to do our business or, or go anywhere, we we saw it clearly. So uh, for us, it was a, a big change. Uh, NASA handled it well. I mean, they they briefed us on it, and what to expect, and and uh, it was sort of a gradual reintroduction. Um, but in terms of reintegrating with my family and my friends, that all was pretty much what I expected. And they were all very gracious and welcoming and happy to see me back on Earth, apparently. You've helped train crew to go on board Mir when NASA astronauts were on that. 
And obviously you trained with the crews that were part of the expedition crews for International Space Station. So you're trained and acclimated that you're going to be missing family events, birthdays, family illnesses, even the potentially the loss of family members. But you and you, your crew had to experience what is a cataclysmic global change. What counsel would you offer future crews if something like a 9-11 event were to occur on their flights? Well, um, yeah, that is discussed amongst the astronauts and international crews. It's also discussed with management before you go, and they will ask you if something bad happens in your family, how do you want it handled? Do you want to know about it? Do you not want to know about it? Uh, most people I know want to know what's going on. Um, I think uh, a lot of us sit down with our families or our friends and talk about it. If something happens, and this is how I want to know, and this is what I might need from you as support on the ground, either for me or for the other people that are affected by it. If it's a huge political event like this, my recommendation to crews is to stay the course. It's just like flying. Aviate first. Keep control of where you are and what you're doing. And don't let the emotional part of that distract you from making sure that you're keeping yourself and the station safe. Uh, all else is secondary until you get everything under control, whether it's something happening in space or on the ground. And so you've got to stay focused on the job that you've been trained to do. When you get a chance to take a breath, or it's the end of the day and you're winding down from making sure everything is in order, then you can stop and reflect or maybe make some phone calls, uh, get some more information. But don't be in a rush to know everything about everything, particularly if it's something bad, until you know you've got yourself, your crew, and your station under control. What kind of support did you get from your Russian crewmates, recognizing that you'd lost a classmate and a friend? And again, it was your country that was attacked. The United States and Russia don't always have the best of relationships, but we seem to do spaceflight together pretty well. Kind of curious about the support you got from your Russian crewmates. Well, first of all, at spaceflight is one area where we are still working, as we have been working for you know over 20 years, which means we trust each other with our lives, we trust each other with our reputations and our careers, and we support each other in making sure that things are working. Um, you know, the station's bigger now, so the responsibilities are to, uh, divided up a little more, but, uh, but the people on the ground and the people in flight still count on each other and, and trust each other and take care of each other, and it is a good relationship. My crewmates in this particular uh, situation were very supportive of me. They were concerned about their own families because of the previous attacks, and as we found out later, 94 Russians died in the World Trade Center, mm -hmm. and um, so it was clearly an international event. Um, but they were very, very supportive, and if I needed some time uh, with family, they gave me on the phone or something, they gave me privacy. Um, and, you know, we would all ask each other if we were okay. But by the same token, we had to keep working. We had a module arriving in six days that we had to successfully dock with the station and make sure everything worked and not get distracted by that. And, um, um, I mean, I think we were doing a good job of recording what we could from the ground, visually particularly. Uh, but we didn't let, get that, let that get in the way of our day-to-day our -day work. Um, when, they, when they found out that I had lost a friend, they were very sympathetic and supportive, and um, as you would expect, because we were all friends. And, um, and then even when I had a couple of life events happen, 
that were loosely tied to the fact that 9-11 had occurred in, in members of my family. They were also very understanding and, and supportive, so supportive of that. So, uh, you know, we were, we were kind of like a family up there. 20 years later, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, a couple, uh, you know, it was an honor to be there and to relate what I saw, and hopefully it was helpful to people down here on Earth. Um, I did realize partly through the mission a couple of weeks after that that we were doing a lot of press conferences and sending down a lot of video of what was going on on the station and trying to do the routine that we had been trained to do. But I did realize at one point that I'm probably talking to about five people because everybody else is focused on 9-11 and what's going on in Afghanistan and whatever. Uh, it did bother me, um, but, um, but I knew that spaceflight had taken a backseat to a whole lot of very important events in the world. But we kept doing our job. In looking back, um, I think it's important to realize we have not had another 9-11. Um, the, the, the events of today and this past week in Afghanistan remind us of how fragile peace can be and how fragile our um, nation and civilization and, and constancy can be if, uh, if we don't maintain security the way we should. So I'm concerned about where things are going right now and whether anything else will happen. I, I know I, we owe such a debt to our armed forces and the people in, in uh, the positions of power in the, in the government who have made the right decisions to the safety that we have, in fact, enjoyed over the, the last 20 years from terrorists. But they're still out there and we've still had incidents and they clearly are people who don't like us and we're going to have to do everything we can to maintain our security. At the same time, we don't want to lose what we have, which is uh, our values of who we are as a, as a people, as a nation, um, the security that we enjoy because we pay attention to the right things, and our ability to live happy and independent lives because we live in the United States of America. And so we need to value those freedoms um, as well as value our security and pay attention uh, as things change around the world. By the same token, when you accomplish great things together as international partners, it strengthens all the countries involved and sets a good example for how people should, should behave. So I think we need to continue to, to move in that direction. And that concludes our conversation with Navy Captain and retired NASA astronaut Frank Culbertson. We are grateful for his sharing his story with us and allowing us to share it with you, our Space for You audience. We thank you for your time. We look forward to sharing more stories with you in the coming weeks. And remember, at Space Foundation, we always have space for you. Thanks for listening.